All right, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part four of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. This is the last episode of this book, and in this episode, I will be discussing different types of sleep disorders like somnambulism, insomnia, narcolepsy, and fatal familial insomnia. I'll be talking about alcohol and how it affects our sleep, temperature and how it affects our sleep, sleeping medication, and also sleep in society, things like workplace efficiency, education in teens, and also healthcare. So to begin, I'll be discussing the different types of sleep disorders, and I'm going to begin with somnambulism. Somnambulism encompasses conditions like sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep eating, sleep texting, sleep sex, and very rarely sleep homicide. Somnambulism occurs during the deepest stages of the NREM or non-dreaming sleep. And the existing evidence suggests that an unexpected spike in nervous system activity during deep sleep is one trigger of this somnambulism. This electrical jolt compels the brain to rocket from the basement of deep NREM sleep all the way up to wakefulness, but it really gets kind of stuck somewhere in between. So it's this really weird state of mixed consciousness where you're neither awake nor asleep. Now, most episodes of this condition are Harmless. Occasionally, however, adult somnambulism can result in a much more extreme set of behaviors, like, for example, this occurrence by Kenneth Parks back in 1987. So back in 1987, this man named Parks, who was 23 at the time, living with his wife and his five-month-old daughter in Toronto, had been suffering from severe insomnia caused by like his job. He was he didn't have a job, and he had he had a bunch of these like gambling debts. And after falling asleep on the couch one day at 1.30 in the morning, he decided to wake up, get in his car barefoot, and depending on the different route he took, he drove like 14 miles to his in-law's house. And when he entered into the house, he made his way upstairs and actually stabbed his mother-in-law to death with a knife he had taken from the kitchen and strangled his father-in-law unconscious. And then Parks ended up getting back into his car upon regaining full consciousness drove to the police station and said i think i have killed some people only then he and then he also realized that he had blood flowing down his arms because he actually severed his own flexor tendon with the knife he used to kill his uh in-laws so uh he ended up going to trial but they decided he was not guilty so the verdict in 1988 was he was not guilt he was not guilty because of this actual sleep disorder. So that's one rare occasion of where someone actually committed sleep homicide. So moving on to the next sleep disorder is insomnia. There's different types of insomnia. The first is sleep onset insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep. And the second is sleep maintenance insomnia, where people have difficulty staying asleep. Now, sleep medicine has very specific clinical boxes that must be checked for a patient to receive a diagnosis of insomnia. For now, These include 1. Dissatisfaction with sleep quantity or quality. Secondly, suffering significant distress or daytime impairment. And thirdly, has insomnia at least three nights each week for more than three months. And last but not least, does not have any coexisting mental disorders or medical conditions that could otherwise cause what appears to be insomnia. So they have to fulfill those criteria in order to con- to be considered having insomnia. About 40 million Americans today suffer from insomnia, 
It is twice as common in women compared to men, and it is more common in African American as well as Hispanics. To date, we have discovered numerous triggers that cause sleep difficulties, including psychological, physical, medical, and environmental factors. External factors that cause poor sleep, like too much bright light at nighttime, the wrong room temperature, caffeine, tobacco, and alcohol consumption can often, often mask insomnia. So their origins are not from within you, and they're not a disorder of you. Rather, there are influences really from the outside world. Again, things like too much light during the nighttime, caffeine, tobacco, etc. And once these individuals really address these outside external problems, they can often fix the insomnia that they're suffering. So it's not really true insomnia, but some sort of external factor that is going on in their lives. Now, one common culprit has been clear in insomnia, and this is definitely an overactive sympathetic nervous system so this fight or flight mechanism that i've discussed before in previous episodes when we get an increase in sympathetic nervous system we get a raised metabolic rate triggered by this fight or flight nervous system activity which is common in insomnia patients and this results in higher core body temperature and i'll be discussing later how we need to drop our temperature in order for us to get to sleep second are higher levels of the alertness promoting hormones like cortisol epinephrine norepinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline and noradrenaline. All of these hormones end up raising our heart rates, making us harder to fall asleep. Third, and related to these chemicals, are altered patterns of brain activity linked with body's sympathetic nervous system. There's also there's this um, emotion-generating regions and memory uh, recollection centers also remain active when they should be shut down. So this is all due to an increase in the sympathetic nervous system, which is the common culprit in insomnia. Patients with insomnia have a lower quality of sleep, reflected in shallower, less powerful electric brainwaves during deep and REM. They also have more fragmented REM sleep, peppered by brief awakenings that they are not always aware of, yet still cause a degraded quality of dream sleep. So insomnia, it's awful. It's, uh, it's a debilitating disease, but if you fix a lot of these external factors you can definitely fix the insomnia. So the next sleep disorder is narcolepsy. There are at least three core symptoms that make up narcolepsy. The first is excessive daytime sleepiness. The second is sleep paralysis. And the third is cataplexy. So excessive daytime sleepiness. It involves daytime sleep attacks, overwhelming, utterly irresistible urges to really sleep at times when you want to be awake, like working at your desk, driving or or eating meals with like family or friends in terms of sleep paralysis this is this frightening loss of ability to talk or move when waking up from sleep in essence your body becomes temporarily locked in your body or you become really temporarily locked um you know in your body you can't move when you wake up very scary feeling uh from what i heard now last but not least is cataplexy The word comes from the Greek kata, meaning down, and plexi, meaning a stroke or seizure. And that is a falling, so like a falling down seizure. However, a cataplectic attack is not really a seizure, but rather a sudden loss of muscle control. So this can range from slight weakness, wherein the head droops, the face will sag, the jaw drops, and speech becomes slurred, to 
all like buckling of knees or a sudden and immediate loss of all muscle tone, resulting in total collapse on the spot. So you'll see this, um, for example, like if someone has like an emotional trigger, like if they're laughing really hard, someone with narcolepsy like is like laughing really hard or gets too emotional, they'll have these cataplectic, cataplectic attack and just kind of fall to the ground. This is a very strange phenomenon, but it's one of the uh, um, things you see in people with um, narcolepsy. Now, this kind of transitions me to kind of the pathophysiology of narcolepsy. And I need to discuss uh, this real quick, this sleep-wake sleep, uh, switch in the hypothalamus. It releases this neurotransmitter called orexin. So orexin is a very important hormone when it comes to narcolepsy. And you can think of orexin as a chemical finger that flips the switch to the on wakefulness position. So when orexin, again this hormone, is released down onto your brainstem, the switch has been flipped, powering up the wakefulness generating regions in your brainstem. And once activated by that switch, the brainstem pushes open the sensory gate of the thalamus, allowing the perceptual world to flood into your brain transitioning you to full stable wakefulness. So it's really this orexin hormone that is signaling your brain to say, hey, wake up, and it'll send signals to your thalamus and give you ultimately, you know, perception of the outside world. Now, scientists have examined the brains of narcoleptic patients in detail after they have passed. And during these investigations, they discovered a loss of almost 90% of all cells that produce orexin. Worse still, the receptors of orexin that cover the surface of the power station of the brainstem were also reduced in number in these narcoleptic patients relative to normal individuals. Because of this lack of orexin, made worse by the reduced number of receptors to receive the orexin, the sleep-wake state of the narcoleptic brain is very unstable, kind of like a floppy, um, faulty flip-flop switch. It's never definitely on or off. There's a sort of midpoint. So this is the culprit. This is the reason people with narcolepsy are really having this problem is because of, um, other than these external factors, we're seeing that there is decreased amount of hormone, orexin, and decreased amount of receptors for orexin. And your brain cannot fully flip the switch onto on to give you, you know, this full wakefulness. Um, so that's what's going on with uh, narcoleptic patients. Now, the last sleep disorder is fatal familial insomnia. This is exactly what it sounds like. It's to the point where a person cannot physically sleep no matter what. No drug, no intervention can help these people sleep, and they end up dying. Now, the underlying cause of fatal familial insomnia is increasingly well understood and builds on... Builds on um, this idea of an anomaly of a gene called PRNP, which stands for prion proteins. So in prion proteins, I'm sure you've heard of it before when it's referred to like mad cow disease or uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob. These proteins end up targeting and destroying certain regions of the brain, for example, the thalamus, resulting in rapidly accelerating form of brain degeneration as this prion protein spreads. Now, due to this puncturing attack by the prion proteins, the sensory gate of the thalamus was effectively, effectively stuck in a permanent open position. 
so patients could never switch off their conscious perception of the outside world, and as a result could never drift off into sleep. No amount of sleeping pills or other drugs could push the sensory gate closed. So you're essentially having your thalamus in an in a on switch, getting full wakefulness, and you can never fully asleep. And this, is again, is due to the prion protein accumulation in the brain. And again, this is fatal. And it's very rare, but it unfortunately um, you know, happens to people. So that covers the different types of sleep disorders. I'm going to move on to alcohol and how alcohol specifically affects our sleep. So alcohol is a class of drugs called a a sedative. Um, More than its artificial sedating influence, alcohol actually dismantles an individual's sleep in additional ways. So first, alcohol fragments sleep, littering the night with brief awakenings. So alcohol-infused sleep is therefore not continuous, and as a result, not as restorative. So you may have noticed when you drink, you know, a glass of wine or a couple of glass of wines or a lot of shots, your sleep is is really fragmented and you often wake up throughout the night and you don't feel fully restored. Now, secondly, alcohol is one of the most powerful suppressors of REM sleep that we know of. When your body metabolizes alcohol, it produces compounds called aldehydes and ketones. The aldehydes that are produced from alcohol will block the brain's ability to generate REM sleep. So you're not generating any REM sleep. And going for such long periods of time without this REM sleep, this dream-producing state, you end up causing this tremendous buildup and backlog and this pressure, sleep pressure, to really obtain REM sleep. And what happens is the pent-up REM sleep pressure erupts forcefully into waking consciousness, causing things like hallucinations, delusions, and disorientation. And the technical term for this terrifying psychotic state is delirium tremens, or DTs. And this is a very serious thing. People going through alcohol withdrawals suffer from DTs as well. You can definitely die from this, and you need to be hospitalized. Um, And again, again, you get these like unstable vital signs. You get hallucinations, delusions, and disorientation. And again, this occurs because the REM sleep you're not getting REM sleep and the REM sleep is building up and it's kind of uh, causing you to like in in your consciousness develop all these things that you would not normally have like hallucinations and delusions and, and disorientation. So again, very scary and very serious. Uh, now let's talk about temperature. So to successfully initiate sleep, your core temperature needs to drop by at least 2 to two to 3 degrees Fahrenheit or about 1 degree Celsius. The decrease in core temperature is detected by a group of thermosensitive cells in the center of your brain within the hypothalamus. Those cells live right next door to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, again, this kind of area that produces your 24-hour clock. And it's for good reason that this temperature group of cells are located next to the SCN. So once core temperature dips below a threshold in the evening, these cells quickly deliver a neighboring message to the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And environmental light and temperature, therefore, synergistically, though independently, dictate nightly melatonin level and sculpt the ideal timing of sleep. 
So once again, we get this dip in temperature. These thermoregulatory cells send a signal to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Suprachiasmatic nucleus will send a signal to the pineal gland. Pineal gland will, will then secrete the melatonin, making us sleepy. So we really need that core body temperature to drop in order to get a good night's sleep. So your body is not letting the cool of night lull you into sleep passively, but actually actively participates. So one way you control your core body temperature is through these different surfaces of your skin, particularly your hands, your feet, and your head. Now the hands, the feet, and the head are remarkably efficient radiating devices that just prior to sleep onset release this kind of like, it's kind of like a thermal venting session and you end up getting this drop in your core body temperature. So if you're having difficulty sleeping, one thing you can do is actually splash water on your face um, and also like on your hands as well. And that'll help kind of transiently lower your body temperature and help you lull to sleep. So you can give that a try. Um, so moving forward onto the next session, which is sleeping pills. Okay, so the older sleep medications termed sedative hypnotics like diazepam were blunt instruments. They sedated you rather than assisting you into falling asleep. Sleeping pills, again, diazepam, Ambien, Xanax, old and new, target the same system in the brain that alcohol does, the receptors that stop your brain cells from firing, and are thus part of the same general class of drugs, sedatives or sedatives. Sleeping pills are effectively knock out the higher regions of your brain cortex. Now, if you compare natural deep sleep brain activity to that induced by sleeping pills like Zolpidem, aka Ambien, or, um, you know, Lunesta, the electrical signal or quality is deficient. So the electrical type of sleep these drugs produce is lacking in the largest, deepest brain waves. Adding to the state of affairs are a number of unwanted side effects, for example, like next day grogginess, daytime forgetfulness, um, like and also rebound insomnia. So when individuals stop taking these sleeping medications, Lunesta, Ambien, etc., they frequently suffer far worse sleep, sometimes even, um, you know, worse, um, sometimes even worse than the poor sleep that led them to seek out sleeping pills to even begin with. And sleeping pills also have a lot of bad side effects as well, so I'm going to go into that right now. Natural deep sleep, as previously learned, helps cement new memories into our brain. Um, how this essential nightmare storage function is affected by drug-induced sleep has been the focus of a lot of like recent animal studies. Ambient-induced sleep, however, failed to match the benefits of like natural deep sleep and actually caused a 50% weakening or unwiring of the brain cell connections formed during learning. In doing so, ambient laced sleep became a memory eraser rather than engraver. So that's a very common side effect that we know about sleep medication. It can cause memory loss. And the most controversial and alarming of these sleep side effects, sleep medication side effects, was highlighted by this doctor named Dr. Daniel uh, Kripke, who was a physician at my alma mater, UC San Diego. And Kripke discovered that individuals suffering Individuals using prescription sleep medications are more likely to die and develop cancer than those who do not. So there was a study. 
They took 10,000 patients who took sleep medication like Ambien or Restoril, and they compared it to 20,000 participants who were not taking sleep medications. And what they noticed what was that those taking sleep medications were 4.6 times more likely to die over this short two and a half period than those who were not using sleep medication. There are now more than 15 such studies from different groups around the world showing higher rates of mortality in those who use sleep medications. One frequent cause of mortality appears to be higher than normal rate of infections. So I discussed the importance of good quality sleep in boosting our immune system. So we know with a good night's sleep, we can actually raise our natural killer cells. And it is possible that medication-induced sleep does not provide the same uh, restorative immune benefits as natural sleep. So you're probably not producing as high or as efficient number of um, natural killer cells. And you can't fight off these infections. Now, another cause of death linked to sleeping pills is an increased risk of fatal car accidents. This is most likely due to the groggy hangover that some people suffer, which I talked about. Then broke the story of cancer. So earlier studies had hinted at a relationship between sleep medication and the mortality risk of cancer, but they were not uh, as well controlled in terms of comparisons. So Kripke's study did a far better job in this regard and included a newer more relevant medication, Ambien. So individuals taking sleeping pills were 30 to 40% more likely to develop cancer within the two and a half year period of the study than those who were not. The, the older sleep medications like Restoril had even a stronger association with those, to, um, with those on mild to moderate doses suffering more than 60% increased risk of cancer. Now, do these findings prove that sleeping pills cause cancer? No, remember that correlation does not equal causation. Um, but again, it's very interesting to see all these side effects of, of sleeping medications, and we wonder whether it's is this doing a lot more harm than good. And he puts here, Dr. Walker puts here, that perhaps the most conservative and least uh, litigious conclusion one can make about all this evidence is that no study to date has shown that sleeping pills save lives. After all, isn't the goal of medication and um, isn't isn't this the goal of medicine and drug treatments to really save lives? And in his scientific, um, you know, opinion, he believes that you know this is not this is not beneficial to us. It's better you get natural, high quality sleep compared to these, um, you know, sleep band aids like like Ambien and and these other benzos, so, and sleep hypnotics. Uh, so that's this section about sleeping medication. He talks about, um, you know, good sleep hygiene practices and, and uh, CBT as well. Um, but I'm going to move forward um, because I'm running kind of long and finish off in the last section about sleep in society and sleep in the workplace. So sleep deprivation degrades many of the key faculties required for most forms of employment. A study across four large U.S. companies found that insufficient sleep cost almost $2,000 per employee per year in lost productivity. That amount rose to over $3,500 per employee in those suffering the most serious lack of sleep. So when an individual 
when they are underslept, we're seeing these key, like, performance indicators or measures um, really go down. So the creativity, intelligence, motivation, effort, efficiency, effectiveness when working in groups, as well as emotional stability, sociability, honesty, all of these are systematically dismantled by insufficient sleep. Early studies demonstrate that shorter sleep amount predicts lower work rate and slow completion speeds of basic tasks. So when these employees are getting poor sleep, they're really hurting the the value of the company. The, you know, the the revenue, the the goals of this company, all these different performance indicators are being decreased because of uh, you know, poor sleep. And he also talks about how these employees are often more unethical. They're more likely to lie. There's also more like social loafing. So social loafing refers to someone who, when you're in a group performance, decides to like exert less effort. So we all know that person in the group who doesn't contribute as much. That's the person who is, is sleep deprived. And that's, again, the term social loafing. Um, he also talks about sleep and education. So... He believes school starts, start times are like way too early. And I completely agree. Um, you know, kids have to start school at like 7.30, 8 o'clock and they have to wake up beforehand and they're not getting the, the sufficient sleep that they need, especially in the, the time that they need it the most, this kind of growing period. Um, and the last section is about sleep and healthcare. So why did we ever force doctors to learn the profession in this exhausting, sleepless way? And a lot of that has to, we have to thank, or not thank, but we have to really criticize and ridicule this doctor named William Stewart Halsted. Halsted was this surgical training, um, he founded the John Hopkins Surgical Training Program in Baltimore in May 1889, and this again, this is a the term residency came from Halstead's belief that doctors actually must live in the hospital for much of their training, allowing them to really be like truly committed in their learning of like surgical skills and medical knowledge. And Halstead's mentality was difficult to argue with since he himself practiced what he preached. So he was extremely hardworking and he was renowned for being like superhuman and having this ability to stay awake for days on end without any fatigue. But what most people didn't realize was that Halstead, again, this surgical training training uh, founder at Johns Hopkins was actually a cocaine addict. And that's, you know, how he was able to do it. Um, and because of a lot of like backlash and facing of government threats, the uh, accredit Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, or ACGME, made certain alter alterations in their residency programs, thank God. First, uh, your residents would be limited to working no more than 80 hours a week, um, working no more than 24 hours nonstop, and also perform one overnight on-call shift every third night. So those are the revined, uh, revised hours. I mean, I kind of knew back... In the olden days, doctors would work like 100, 120 20 hours a week. Um, but finally, the ACGME limited these residents to working only, not only, but working a cap of 80 hours um, a week. 
Um, so that's something I have to look forward to, I guess, um, in these coming months. So that's the end of why we sleep. Um, again, any question you have about sleep is answered in this book. It's a good read. Highly recommend it. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you enjoyed um, the other episodes of Why We Sleep. I'll go ahead and leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to leave me a comment or a suggestion or leave me any question. I answer all my DMs, so feel free to ask me a question. Um, and again, I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope you tune in next time for um, my next book, which will probably be Life Force by... Uh, Tony Robbins. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Again, thanks for listening.